following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to guess that every generation of prospective parents, as they look out upon the uh, culture, the landscape of society, and all of its brokenness and sinfulness, and ugliness, they question whether or not they ought to bring a child into this world. My grandparents stared in the face of the Great Depression. My parents, in the mix of the Cold War, particularly Cuban Missile Crisis. My own, one of my sons, I have three sons and a daughter, and one of my sons, uh, we just watched the beating of Rodney King, and then after that, the L.A. riots. And certainly as we look into our world today, uh, reflecting back over a year ago uh, in the first months of a global pandemic, disagreements among uh, co-workers and family and friends on how to respond to this, uh, to this pandemic, a political chasm and seemingly monthly racial troubles, most notably the death of George Floyd. But we're tempted in the face of that to wonder, is there any hope? I've been alive 20,665 days. (laughs) 56 years and seven months, and over those 56 years, I've witnessed from the comfort of my own suburban homes beatings and shootings and killings of minorities, primarily blacks, and the resultant riots that I simply, that if I simply look at this brief period of history, I might be tempted to conclude that there is no hope for ethnic reconciliation in our country. Or if I would broaden my gaze around the world, and if you begin to think about this, is really just child's play, what we find here in the United States. When you begin to gaze your, uh, your eyes around the world the, of the ethnic cleansings that are going on on a regular basis, I might be tempted 
to tell this next generation, don't bring another child into this world. But then I'm reminded of God's cultural mandate that is still in effect today. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. For we are still in God's image, though fallen and broken, and we are still called to make that image known in our country, in our cities, within our neighborhoods, down our very streets as we come to faith in Jesus Christ and as he recreates us. We are, our job is culturally, the mandate is, is that we are to make Christ known. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, he says, Far be it to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Paul say to us as we look at the brokenness of this world, particularly ethnic tensions? How do we boast in the cross? See, what we do is we want the meaning and the worth and the beauty and the power of the cross of Christ to be seen and loved because of the way that we live. So what I want you to see this morning in our passage is that the more that you boast, the more you boast in the gospel, the deeper and sweeter ethnic diversity and harmony is ours in our corporate and personal lives. In other words, if we desire more ethnic diversity and harmony, then boast more and more in the cross in the gospel. Why is this? What is the connection between the gospel and ethnic diversity and harmony? Well, that's what Paul answers here in Ephesians chapter uh, 2. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles there. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. This is a dense passage, a lot to consider, so we need to get after it. But before we do, let's pray. So Father, please help us. This passage, Father, has much to offer for us, and yet, Father, we recognize that apart from your Holy Spirit giving us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear, we will not get it. And so, Father, we're dependent upon your Holy Spirit right now that you would be at work speaking to each one of us. Father, we pray that your plan, that your plan to bring reconciliation, that it would become true of our very lives. So we pray, give us help, we ask. We thank you, these things in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, the first thing I think we need to see is that the gospel is a person. Many times when we think of the gospel, uh, we think of a message, and it is a message, but it is a, more than just a message. It is a message to believe, and it is a person to love. And I want you to see that, and let's read again verses 11 through uh, the beginning of verse 14. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for 
he himself is our peace. The gospel is a person. The letter to the Ephesians has, has kind of a tone of exaltation. It's, a, it's a, a letter of praise. Paul is thrilled with what he has seen the gospel be doing in his own life, but also what the gospel is doing in the lives of the uh, Ephesians. And so he's boasting in the gospel, which is why he cannot help but break out uh, at the end of the next chapter. He breaks out in praise uh, by saying this in verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the tone. That's the exaltation. And he has this, his hope in this person, the person of Jesus Christ. So that he starts off his letter and puts Jesus Christ at the center. You go back to chapter 1, verse 3, and he says, Blessed, oh happy, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, where? In Christ. The good news is not simply a message. It's a message about a person. Jesus Christ is the good news. Now, good news, the enjoyment of good news can only be enjoyed by the depth of our understanding of the bad news. Nothing more inspires gratitude and praise in the life of an individual when they recognize, in a saved sinner, when they recognize, they look back to that pit from which he or she has come. And so it's a deep pit. And you saw that last week. Verses 1 through 10, Paul addressing the spiritual state of his readers, he, he writes in verse 1 of chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. Dead to God, alive to the passions and desires that ultimately were killing us, following God's enemy, Satan, deserving God's rightful wrath. And did you notice there in verse 3, he says, uh, like the rest of mankind, there wasn't anything special about the Ephesians apart from Christ. There is some belief that perhaps verses 1 and 2 is just referring to the Gentiles and then Paul, as he's then turning his attention to then himself and his Jewish brothers, he's recognizing it's, we all once lived this way. Man, it's a possible understanding of this, knowing where his pen is about to uh, go. But it's in that state that we see there in verse 4 these two words. He says, but God... God inserting himself into the situation. God recognizing where we were and he comes into and he helps us see our sinful state to be grieved by it so that we repent from it and we rest in him but God. <laughs> but in the case of the Gentiles, uh, there was even more bad news. The plan of God was to save humanity from their sin through a people, the Jews, which created an ethnic division. Again, nothing inspires thanks and praise when we recognize the pits we were saved from. For non-Jews, the bad news is even worse. See, look there at verse 11. He says, therefore, remember, that is, 
The Ephesians Gentiles, who were once dead, but were made alive by grace through faith for good works, were even more hopeless before Christ in this way. First of all, they were, they were Christless. Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Now, we've already seen in verse 3, chapter 1, that you cannot experience God's blessing apart from being in Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. And so God had promised the nation of Israel that the Messiah would be the crucial individual who would usher in the God's kingdom and all of its blessings. So that you go over to chapter 1 and you look at this, this prayer at verse 17. And he says, he's not ceasing to give thanks for them, remembering them in their prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, of revelation, and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So this is what he's praying for, that they have their eyes, their hearts, that, that they may be enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which he is called to you. First, number three, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Number four, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great mites. So, so he's praying that they might know the power. He calls it a immeasurable power. And it's according to the working of his great might. Well, what's the demonstration of that great might? Look at verse 20. That he works in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's an immeasurable power that God has for those who are going to be his, and it is demonstrated by what he did to his son, in his son. But as Gentiles who have no Christ, they're separated from that power. Perhaps you can relate. Before you knew the person of Jesus Christ, perhaps you're in that state So that while we knew there was something wrong with our soul, we thought if we just got fit, <laughs> or if we just ate the right food, or just got a little more education, or a host of other ineffective solutions, we thought we might be healed. We thought that would help us in our states. And the same goes with our ethnic divide. We try program after program, policy after policy, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do these things, but the pit is much darker and deeper than a simple policy. The Ephesian believers, they were Christless. Uh, look at the second thing. They were, uh, again, verse 12. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were stateless, stateless. Now, what's the big deal? Well, it means that they were outside the sphere of God's electing grace. See, right before God's people were to enter into the promised land, we have the second giving of the law, and this is what God has to remind his own people. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, he says, For you are a people holy, that is set apart, to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you to be the people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are here on the earth. Now, so that you don't get your head too big, Israel... He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. No, no, for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. But the Gentiles, they were outside that sphere of God's electing grace, as revealed in the Old Testament. Christless, stateless, friendless. Third thing we see there is that they are strangers to the covenants of the promise. See, there was one promise that God had made to this man, Abram, who was, by the way, an idolater, an idol worshiper. God pulled him out of his idolatry. Abraham wasn't looking for God. God found Abraham, and then he made a promise to Abraham that through him he would bless the world, and that all of the covenants then that followed were out of that great promise. So there's a series of covenants that flowed uh, flowed out of that promise, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenants, and all these covenants were increasingly defining how God was going to uh, fulfill his promise to Abraham. These covenants were an expression of Yahweh's uh, friendship with the Jews. Well, the Ephesian believers were not party to those covenants, thus friendless when it came to God. There was no reason for them to believe God could be their friend. Again, perhaps you can relate. Then hopeless, (laughs) having no hope, he writes, outside of God's promises, elective grace, without the promise of a Christ, they had no hope. There, There was no reason to believe that God knew them or cared about them. Hopeless, and finally, Godless, end of verse 12, without God in the world. Oh, yeah, they had lots of gods. They had a lot of idols. They had those things that they thought might bring, like we do, might bring some kind of sense of joy and peace to this brokenness within. There was a, they, were, they had gods, but they were outside the God. They, uh, they, the, the creator, the sustainer of life, the sovereign Lord was not on their side. Before Jesus Christ, they were on their own. They were slaves to their own passions and desires with the only prospect of having to face this holy God of the universe and give account for their rebellion. That's bad news. And it is this bad news that created and creates this hostility between Jews and Gentiles. It's not surprising. You know, we, we know what this means. We, we understand what hostility means. It begins in, it begins in the playground, uh, moves into the hallways. There's this, there's this a separation. The people who are in and the people who are out begins with little kids, and it just continues to move up as we get older. Perhaps you graduate from high school, and then you don't go to college. Oh, those are the people who do go to college. Or you go to the community college. Oh, those go, go to the university. Uh, we're, the, we're the in people. We're the out, out people. Uh, we, we get into our neighborhoods, and we're in the in neighborhood, and you're not in the in neighborhood. It's the outsider versus the insider, looking in or looking out. This is the hostility that we all are experiencing day by day. You know what it's like. Do you have a Starbucks coupon or a, a card on your phone? You're the inside person. It's all over. 
We know what it feels like to be on the outside looking in, and we know what it's like to be on the inside kind of looking outside, saying, look what I got, (laughs) and you don't. You feel it every day. I feel it every single day, small ways, big ways. So it's not surprising that there is such a hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentiles look over the fence and see God's favor on the Jews, and yet as they're looking over that fence, they're saying, wait a minute, they're just like us. Fallen. Or the Jews, rather than understanding the responsibility of their privilege, cast a downward scoffing look upon all those outside of God's promise. Look at us. And so there's not a surprise that there's hostility between various ethnicities that kind of works out of this. I may be bad, but if I can just find someone that's worse than me, it makes me feel better about myself. It is if all the nations have this nagging complex that they are not what they ought to be. The Bible says, fall short of the glory of God. So in order to shore up the collective conscience as an ethnicity, we find what is wrong with those we don't know or understand or who just look different than us. If you're not Dutch, you're not much. (laughs) That's what my people say. So as we are looking at the complexity of the ethnic divide around us, keep this in mind. The divide between Jews and Gentiles was not small, it was not simple, it was not shallow, it was huge, complex, and deep. It was as confusing and challenging as any ethnic hostilities that we experience today. And there was, first of all, a religious divide. The Jew uh, knew the one true God on the inside. Gentiles were pagan and did not know God. It was a cultural and social divide. There were ceremonies and practices like circumcision, verse 11, and dietary regulations and rules of cleanliness all designed to set Jews apart for a period of redemptive history. And the divide was racial. See, the bloodline, it went back to Jacob, not Esau. Isaac, not Ishmael. Abraham, no one else. And it's set not into place for decades or centuries, but millennium. which is why ideology is never going to solve our ethnic divides. The gospel is not another ideology to simply tack on to our political affiliation. John Piper in his book, Bloodlines, writes, It seems to me that too many Christians gravitate to right-wing Republican politics or left-wing Democratic politics because they see some parallel between a political plank and a part of the gospel. It's like saying that the party that uses candles must be true, the true one, because they're shaped so much like sticks of gospel dynamites. The gospel was meant to explode with saving power in the lives of politicians and social activists, not help them decorate their social agenda. See, the gospel is not an ideology. The gospel is a person. You see that at the beginning of verse 14. He himself is our peace. 
Now, now did, you, did you catch the contrast here? Oh, grammar. Here comes some grammar. Contrasting con- conjugation here. <laughs> Between the bad news, uh, you, do you see that in verse 4? I, I, I stated it for you. In verse 4, as we're looking at what it means to be saved, he says, but God. Uh, then we go down to, as we're, he's now talking about this ethnic uh, division. He says, verse 13, but now, look there, in Christ Jesus. How is he our peace? Well, the foundation of peace between ethnicities is, number one, our peace with God. All the ideologies, all the politics, all the philosophies, all the proposals for ethnic reconciliation fail because they do not address the issue of all ethnicities, the need for peace with God. So rather than having peace with the one and only true God, we make gods in our images who are unable to save us from the penalty and power of sin in our lives. And so all of our ideologies and politics and philosophies and proposals are simply promotions of our many gods vying for supremacy. No wonder in a pluralistic society where absolute truth is dismissed, that we are in such conflict with one another. There is as many gods as there are people. And they're all under the little g-god of tolerance. We ought not to tolerate untruth. See, there is only one God. Only one God in whom we have offended and are separated by our sin. So again, look back at verse 13. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance. First of all, we were brought near by his blood. Christless people, verse 12, remember that? We were without Christ, separated from Christ. The same Christ brought us near by his own blood. He shed his blood on the cross for our sins, and so it is the blood which inaugurated a new covenant. Friendless people, strangers to the covenants, he writes for us in verse 12, were brought into a new covenant so that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he's inaugurating this Lord's Supper, and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the what? The new covenant in my blood. In the shedding of his blood, Gentiles were no longer strangers to the covenants, for the new covenant is the fulfillment of all those covenants that it was pointing towards and it is the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. (laughs) But more, more. The dividing wall of hostility was broken down in his flesh. What is that dividing wall? What's the law? The law separated Jews and Gentiles religiously, culturally, socially, and racially. So how did uh, Jesus break down the dividing wall of hostility? We see it there in verse 15. 
by abolishing the law of commandments. No, verse uh, 14. He made us one and broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh. See, the word abolishing there is to mean make ineffective or powerless. See, Jesus Christ did not uh, do away with the moral law. Still accountable for that. But he did remove the ceremonial and social demands of the law, for these were pointing to the fulfillment of the moral law. So what did the law do before Christ? What was the moral law doing to us? Well, in Galatians chapter 3, the book right before Ephesians, chapters, uh, chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, Paul said that the law imprisoned everyone under sin. He, he describes humanity as being captive. We, we are captive to what this law is requiring of us, what God is requiring of us. We're, we're captive to breaking it and thus being guilty, but we're also uh, captive to the shame of it. Because none of, no one could fulfill it perfectly. And so he writes in uh, Galatians 3.10, he says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. We're captive. You're captive. If we think that somehow that we can kind of work our way out of this, if somehow we can uh, make a way on our own apart from Christ, all we'll find is that we're imprisoned, captive to this moral law that God demands of our very lives. And look how he piles the word upon word uh, there in uh, verse 15. He says, the law of the commandments demanded perfection which imprisoned all of, its, all of us into its demands and its guilt. And then he says, the commandments were expressed in ordinances and ordinances are just simply authoritative decrees. But Jesus in his flesh, that is in his body, he lived an authentic human life fulfilling all the demands of the law. Then what did he do? He fulfilled all the demands of the law. So what did he do after that? Well, there in Galatians 3, this is what he did. After fulfilling all the demands of the law found in the decrees. Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's what he did. He fulfilled, he fulfilled the law on your behalf. He did everything that God demanded of him, and he fulfilled it perfectly in such a way that when he went to the cross, what did he do? He went to the cross not for himself, but for you. For the curse that's upon you. <laughs> he died. What do we say? He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. So whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile, whether you are Hispanic or Samoan, whether you are Vietnamese or Congolese, whether you are Peruvian or Iranian, whether you are Cherokee or Chinese, there is one person, Jesus Christ, who is your peace, peace with God. 
And thus when you receive that peace, there is a greater love and there is a greater loyalty than to one's own ethnicity. It is a loyalty to the gospel and it's a loyalty to the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel is a person. So the more you boast in the gospel, the deeper and sweeter ethnic diversity and harmony is ours in our corporate and personal lives. <laughs> but we need to see something else. There's three points to this, by the way, and that was just one. Now, thankfully, the next two are really short. <laughs> Point two, the gospel is power. See, the mind that blowing, astonishing power of the gospel is its ability and its finality to place an individual into a new reality. See, look there at the, verse, uh, at the middle of verse 15. You see his aim, uh, middle of verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. The gospel is the power, first of all, to recreate Paul intentionally is using creation uh, language here. See, you hear that? That he might create. He's already done that back in verse 10 that you saw last week, and that is that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Well, in himself, he has created a new humanity. Instead of being divided by external measures, they are unified by their new creation status that comes by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the unity is not simply by creed or an agreed-upon expression of faith. It is a real unity that transcends the physical. It is a spiritual unity. We are members of the body of Christ. And so let me read for you 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And it is a new reality. So he's recreated us now into a new reality, and he's already mentioned that reality that you saw last week in verses 5 and 6. For in verses 5 and 6 he says, even when we were dead in our transpresses, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The new reality is, is that what we sense here is not the reality. As C.S. Lewis said, this is just simply the shadowlands of the reality. So it's not surprising that as Paul envisions the church growing up, he says in chapter 4, verse 13, he says they will, the church will grow up to a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we're no longer a plurality of people, but we're just one person. Having our individual identities being absorbed into Jesus Christ. The gospel has the power to place us into that new reality, one that transcends our senses that makes former ethnic enemies at peace with one another. And guess what? The basis of that peace, it is founded again upon our peace with God. See, the power of, 
of the gospel is our reconciliation to God, and we see that again in verse 16. He says he has done this by, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In one body is a bl- mind-blowing reality. So as the Father is at peace, listen to this, as the Father is at peace with the Son, so the Father is at peace with you if you are in Christ. Why? Because you are, you are the Son. <laughs> Paul is revealing to us what physical senses are unable to perceive. We are in Christ so that what happened to Jesus Christ happened to us. Listen to the words of the Colossians. Paul is writing them, and listen to the past, present, and future nature of this reality. Paul writes, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, for you have died, past nature of this reality, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, present nature of this reality, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear future in him in glory. So the Father's acceptance and approval of Jesus Christ is the acceptance and approval of us, and it is that greater reality that is the basis for our unity with one another. We are to recognize what is true of us, that we are one in Christ, and it is the cross in which our hostility with God is removed, and thus it's removed with one another. And that's what the point Paul is making here at the end when he writes, thereby killing the hostility. Both the Jews and Gentiles weren't alienated from, were alienated from God by their sin, so that every advantage that maybe the Jews were, were, uh, were boasting about that had been identified in verses 11 and 12 were really of no advantage, so that the hostility that is killed here is both Jews and Gentiles' enmity with God because of sin, and then as a result, their hostility with one another. The gospel is power. So the more you boast in the gospel, the deeper and sweeter ethnic diversity and harmony is ours in our corporate and personal lives. The gospel is a person. The gospel is power. And the gospel is the plan. See, I said at the beginning that this letter has a hopeful upbeat tone to it. God has a plan. Paul reveals that plan in chapter 1 and verse 10 when he writes, it is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's the plan. The book of Ephesians is Paul's exaltation of this amazing plan that God has and is working out of the church. And part of that plan is to reconcile ethnic groups in Christ. It is a plan uh, that does not diminish culture. 
And all that is wrapped up in those cultures, dance and food and customs and ceremonies and music and uh, languages and games and all the other things that makes up a culture, but rather to take the threads of all of these cultures to weave a tapestry that is Christ-exalting and thus God-glorifying. And what is so mind-boggling, we couldn't imagine what God requires, that, that it requires God's revelation, is that in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, that you're going to be looking at, God's plan is that all peoples are, look at there, verse 6, that all peoples are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And it is a plan that is guaranteed success. so that as we get a window into the future, into the present and the future, Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Speaking of the Lamb of God. For you were slain And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. (laughs) He's got a plan. (laughs) God is so glorious. It is going to require every single ethnicity and all the culture that comes with them to weave it together in such a way that he is honored. It's been a long time, these many days that I have lived and what we have seen, and it can be discouraging if we just looked horizontally But now as we begin to look in reality, there's hope. The gospel is a person. The gospel is power. And the gospel has a plan. So the more you boast in the gospel, the deeper and sweeter ethnic diversity and harmony is ours in our corporate and personal lives. So first of all, embrace the one, Jesus Christ, who is your peace. As Psalm verse two, uh, Psalms 2 says at the end, it says, kiss the sun and go deep with him. Learn what he has done to make peace with you and God. And then expand your ethnic palates. Start appreciating strange foods. <laughs> Taste flavors you have never experienced before. Mix up your Spotify playlist to include music of other cultures and enter into relationships with those not ethnically like you and enjoy the plan. Boast of the gospel. Father, we thank you. (laughs) Oh, Father, as we look out on our own country, as we look into our own cities, as we stare out at our own neighborhoods, as we even look down our streets. Father, there's much to be discouraged by. There is much within the battle for faith, Father, that gets us discouraged. But we thank you for your word that you have revealed to us 
that there is one, Christ, who is good news. And that through him and the power that you demonstrated at his death and resurrection, that this is the same power that now you apply to our lives to save us from ourselves and to save our streets and to save our neighborhoods and save our cities and save our country and ultimately our world. Father, we're thankful that you have revealed to us that there is a plan and the plan is that you are bringing us together through the gospel. Father, our prayer is if there's there's anybody here who has maybe heard the message but hasn't kissed the Son, hasn't embraced the Son as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they understand the gospel is a person, not just simply something to know. Father, we pray that as we go deep in the gospel, may we be people who have hope for all of the relationships that are broken in our, in our lives, within our own families and outside of our families. And Father, we pray that Christ would be our peace. Father, we thank you the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed. Father, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he poured that cup and said, this is the blood shed for you, a new covenant. Thank you, Father, that we enter into that new covenant through faith in Jesus Christ. As we enjoy, Father, again, the gospel, as we taste it and as we smell it, we pray, Father, may we love him that much more. We pray these things in his name. Amen. 